All right, I want to welcome everyone to our continuing study of 1 Timothy together. Do me a quick favor in the back. If you can hear me, give me a thumbs up. All right, 1 Timothy. If you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6 this morning. And we're going to pause and we're going to pray again. And we're going to call upon the name of the Lord together. And we're going to ask God to use His Word in our life this morning. So let's pray together. Lord, we love to come together as a church and sing Your praise, Lord Jesus. God, we love to be reminded and we love to celebrate it together, Lord, that You have taken all of our sins from us, Lord. That Your mercy is more than all of our sins. To remember, Lord Jesus, that You are our bleeding Lamb that died in our place. And yet, our triumphant Lord who conquered death and who right now, Lord Jesus, sits on the throne of the universe. And so we come to Your Word today, Lord Jesus, in light of Your Gospel, in light of all that You have done for us, in light of Your free gift of righteousness that You've given us through faith in Your holy name. And we come as disciples of Jesus this morning to sit at Your feet, Lord Jesus, as our teacher and our Lord, and our King. And our prayer today, God, is that You would help us to incline our ears to hear You. Lord, teach us obedience as Your people. God, we confess it freshly this morning. Left to ourselves to figure out righteousness, Lord, we'll get it wrong every time. So Lord, we need Your Word, and we pray that it, this morning that You would cause it to come with clarity, and with profit, Lord, in our life. Thank You for these God-breathed words. Be with us now, Lord, as we study Your Word together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Alright, if you have your Bibles, this morning I want to invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And we're going to read the first two verses together. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And this is our passage. This is the the pasture that we'll feed on together in the Word of God this morning. Let's read it, beginning in verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are, are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. Teach and urge these things. This is God's Word to Grace Community Church this morning. Now, that phrase in, in verse 1, that word bondservants, that's the Greek word doulos, and it's the word for slave. And so we're about to give attention this morning to a passage in the New Testament about slavery. About slavery. And I just want to mention this. You know, as we head towards explaining this text and understanding this text, I want to give you a reminder, Grace Community Church, okay? This is a perfect example of the benefits of doing consecutive exposition through the Word of God. 
okay? Of working passage by passage through books of the Bible because it forces you to deal with topics like this, okay? Never ever will you wake up and say, hey, you know what I'd like to preach about today? I'd like to preach a sermon on, oh, I know, slavery. Slavery. And so consecutive exposition and working through books like this, it forces us to deal with texts that we would be greatly tempted to ignore. And surely you understand that dynamic, that almost never at your typical run-of-the-mill, uh, seeker-sensitive megachurch will you go and you hear a, a sermon on slavery. Okay? Typically, it just ain't going to happen. And so this actually forces us to deal with these topics because they're God-breathed. We need to understand them. We need to obey them as the church of Jesus Christ. And so I want to encourage you, okay? Um, and specifically you who are uh, new to Grace Community Church and you decided to visit this church, maybe this is your first time and you're thinking, great, you know, I wanted to check out this church. Maybe you know some people here. Maybe you've heard, you know, some things that you wanted to come and you get here and boom, sermon on slavery. And you're thinking, what kind of church is this? Okay? What kind of church is this? And this is our conviction that we just work our way through the Word of God. That whatever God says in His Word, He breathes it out. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. And we want to give attention to everything that God has said. This is called in Acts 20, preaching the whole counsel of God. That's our heart as a local church. And so we're going to dig into this passage Together, and we're going to do several different things this morning, okay? We live in a world that's very different in a lot of ways than the Greco-Roman world that the Apostle Paul was dealing with. And in some other ways, in very significant ways, it's not different at all. But it is different in some significant ways. And we're going to spend some time this morning dealing with that. Dealing with the context, the historical context that the Apostle Paul is writing into, um, and, and these words in 1 Timothy, church at Ephesus in the Greco-Roman world. So we're going to do that together, but I want to remind us that our conviction, our conviction actually reminds us this morning that we're not just, you know, we don't just believe that God's Word is historically true. We believe 2 Timothy 3.16 that God's Word is profitable, that all Scripture is profitable. So we're going to give attention to understanding this passage in its historical context this morning. We're going to do a lot of that. But our main aim this morning is to gather around the Word of God. And Ron prayed it just a moment ago, to be addressed by the Word of God. Not just to learn something today, but be summoned into obedience by King Jesus, our King. We want to sit at His feet under these God-breathed words, and we want to obey them. We want to understand what God would have us to, to learn and respond appropriately. And so, we're going to do a lot of historical work this morning, but I want to remind us that that passage that we just read, those two verses, they come to us in the language of imperative. Okay, They're commandments to be obeyed. And so we're going to approach them as God gave them to us this morning. We're going to approach them as commandments of King Jesus seeking our obedience as the church of Jesus Christ. And so in spite of all the complexities of slavery in the Bible, and we're going to work through those complexities as we move through this text, this passage still applies to every single one of us. 
And we're going to talk about how as we move through this passage together. So I want to encourage you to trust your Father in heaven this morning to command you and summon you to obedience, to holiness, um, to, to obedience to Christ, to holy living this morning in response to the Word of God. We can trust God to do that through these God-breathed words in 1 Timothy uh, 6, verse 1 and 2. All right. So as we've seen through the last couple of weeks as we, in, in 1 Timothy 6, that we, uh, we call this the church order letter. And what's been happening in the last two weeks is the Apostle Paul has been singling out certain groups within the church. Two weeks ago, he singles out uh, widows. Last week, Nick led us, he singled out elders. And then this week, we see the Apostle Paul, he singles out slaves in the church at Ephesus. Now, for honest, this is probably surprising to 99.9% of us in the room that the Word of God would single out slaves and call them to faithful obedience uh, to their master, actually give them commandments to obey to their, to their master. But the New, Text, the New Testament actually speaks about this master-slave dynamic in several different places. This is not the only place. Okay? So th- these dynamics show up in the household codes of Ephesians 5 and 6 and Colossians 3. And four, again, the Apostle Paul gives commandments into this master-slave relationship. And then there's also extensive treatment given to this topic in Titus chapter 2 and 3. So Ephesians 5 and 6, Colossians 3 and 4, Titus 2 and 3, and then we land on this same principle in 1 Timothy 6. And so I want us to understand, this is a biblical topic. This is something that the Bible deals with, and we need to understand some things um, about the historical context. And so, uh, just a preliminary comment here. As we begin to talk about slavery and deal with slavery, there's some important distinctions that we need to make. Okay? And, and, and here's what I mean. That slavery has been practiced in a lot of different ways over the scope of human history. There's been... Uh, a lot of different forms of slavery. And we want to be careful that we don't take the form that we're most familiar with, most of us, not all of us, but most of us, the form of slavery that we're familiar with is the trans-Atlantic uh, African slave trade, and, and even more specifically than that, antebellum slavery in the American South. And we want to make sure that we're not reading back our view of slavery through that grid into uh, the, the version of slavery that the Apostle Paul is dealing with in the church of Ephesus. And so one of the things that I just want us to be aware of, that as slavery has been practiced throughout human history, there have been crueler, more cruel, more inhumane versions of this institution than other versions of it. And we want to understand that together. It's not all the same. And so we're going to give attention to some of these historical points um, with an eye to distinguishing and understanding specifically the slavery that the Apostle Paul is dealing with in the New Testament letters. And so I'll start here. And this is just one of the things that it's good to be aware of, good to broaden our understanding of is that unlike other forms of slavery, 
Roman slavery during the New Testament period was not built upon the wicked foundation of man-stealing. Of man-stealing. So this distinguishes the slavery that the Apostle Paul deals with from the slavery that most of us are most familiar with, the transatlantic African slave trade. Okay? It was built upon the foundation of about 13 million Africans who were kidnapped from wherever they lived. Okay, we're talking men and women and children. They were enslaved, they were chained, they were sold to strangers, they were, they were put on ships, they were trafficked all across the world, mainly to the Americas. They, they were um, held in bondage and never to see their homeland ever again. The Word of God actually has a term to describe the transatlantic African slave trade, and it's called man-stealing. Man-stealing. This is a specific sin mentioned in the law of Moses, and it carries the death penalty. Okay? So if if you ever wanted to know what God, what the God of the Bible thinks about that, then listen to this. In Exodus 21... Verse 16, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. That's the law of God. Okay, And so that whole practice of enslaving people, kidnapping, uh, the Bible says not only do the man-stealers deserve to die, but also the people that bought them deserve to die. This is a wicked sin in the Word of God. And that whole system that we're familiar with was built upon manslaving. But in first century Rome, there were many other ways that someone could become a slave that did not include man-stealing. That did not include man-stealing. For example, a, a family, an individual... Uh, could, could come into slavery because they were unable to pay their economic debts. Okay? So someone could voluntarily sell themselves into slavery or, or, or uh, sell their children into slavery or be forced into slavery by their creditors because they couldn't pay their debts. This practice of, of economic hardship producing slavery... That practice is as old as the Old Testament itself. Also, this is also the background in the ancient Near East. And so listen to this. 2 Kings chapter 4 says this, verse 1. It says, Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elijah, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditor has come to take away my children to be his slaves. And so you have this godly man, says he feared the Lord. He was in debt to creditors. He dies unexpectedly. He's not able to pay his debt. And the creditor comes and he's about to take his sons away from his wife. And so... This is one of the ways that you could end up in slavery, both in the ancient Near East and in the Roman world. And this is why the book of Proverbs says this, the borrower is slave to the lender. Okay, um, It says that because 
you know, when you didn't pay your debt in the ancient world, something different happened to you than your credit score just started going down. Okay, that number started, you know, when we do that, our number starts dropping. When they did that, there were much more severe consequences. And one of those consequences was slavery. Okay, and so this is a different, um, there's some different ways that you can end up in this condition that don't involve man-stealing in the Word of God. That's the first one. The second is this. Unlike other forms of slavery, slavery in the Roman Empire was not based upon race. It was not based upon race. Any and every race in the Roman Empire could be enslaved. Okay? And so this is very different than the version of slavery that most of us are most familiar with. You know, you walk down the street in the early 1800s in, in Montgomery, Alabama, or Jackson, Mississippi, and you know exactly who the slaves are. They're the black people, okay? It's race-based slavery. That's what it is. Not so in the New Testament. And so that same reality in the city of Ephesus that the Apostle Paul is dealing with, you take a stroll down the street of the city of Ephesus. This is a multicultural city. It's a melting pot of cultures. And you walk down the street and you have no idea who the slaves are. Because lots of different races and cultures are slaves in this New Testament period. And not only that, there wasn't even a clear division of labor between what the slaves did and what the, free, what the day laborers did and what the citizens did. And so in this period that the Apostle Paul is writing into, slaves can serve as doctors, lawyers, professors, teachers... New Testament even tells us they can be set over entire household, given tremendous responsibility. They can even own property under Roman law, and some slaves even own slaves themselves. Even own slaves themselves. And so these things, by and large, would be unheard of in some of the forms of slavery that we're most familiar with. These are important uh, uh, things to distinguish. Okay? And the last is this. Unlike other forms of slavery, Roman slavery was not a permanent state. Okay? In both testaments of the Word of God, slavery is not necessarily permanent. Exodus chapter 21, verse 2. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. John chapter 8, verse 35. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So in, in both Testaments, in the Word of God, slavery was not necessarily this permanent condition that you could not get out of. Okay, And there's actually a legal process that would be real helpful for us to be familiar with called manumission. This is part of Roman law. Manumission. Slaves were regularly freed in the Roman Empire. Okay? Slaves were regularly freed in the Roman Empire through this legal process called manumission. Slave goes through this legal process, whatever the fees were that were attached to it, and that slave comes out the other side of this process legally referred to as a freedman under Roman law. Under Roman law, manumission. This happens so frequently in the New Testament period that by the year 4 A.D., 
Caesar Augustus makes a decree that the minimum age that a slave could be freed would be 30 years old. Because so many slaves were being set free. He was concerned that too many uneducated slaves were becoming Roman citizens. And so he set limits to how it could be done. And so think about how different that is. A slave not only could become a freedman, but could become a Roman citizen. A Roman citizen. You remember how much weight that carries in the book of Acts when the Apostle Paul drops that card in different places that he's in and persecuted? It carries tremendous privileges in the Roman Empire. And when a Roman citizen freed his slave, his slave enjoyed the same status as his master, a Roman citizen. And so this is an important distinction in the ancient world. Manumission meant that there was at least hope in the the ancient world, in the world that the Apostle Paul was writing into, there was at least hope to gain freedom. To gain freedom. Again, not so in other forms of slavery. In fact, the Apostle Paul zones in and he deals with this legal process of manumission in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 21. He says this to Christian slaves. He says this, If you can gain your freedom, avail yourself the opportunity. And then he says, do not become the slaves of men. And so Christian slaves are addressed in this passage with certain duties they have towards their master. But the New Testament tells us that if an opportunity presents itself to be free from this condition, take it. Take it. This gift, a common grace in the Roman world, manumission. Okay? So these are significant differences, and they're important. Okay? But we don't want to overdo these differences to, to mean that, you know, okay, so the slavery that we're most familiar with is horrible and cruel, but the slavery in the Roman world was this flowery bed of ease. Not so. And not so at all. This is a hard condition that the Apostle Paul leans into and instructs these, these slaves. It's still slavery, okay? It's still slavery. It's just a less cruel form of the slavery that we're most familiar with. And so you could say it like this, okay? At the very least, these slaves that are being addressed in verse 1 and 2, at the very least, they are in less than ideal conditions, okay? They are owned by a master. They are owned by a master in less than ideal conditions. And surprisingly... The Word of God leans into this hard situation and gives these slaves commandments to obey. Commandments to obey. The kingship of Jesus is injected into this slave-master relationship. And so for that reason, this is a hard text of Scripture. Okay? This is a hard text in the Word of God. Now, I don't mean it like this. Not a hard text to understand... It's a hard text to obey that this is the authority of Jesus Christ on display in the Word of God in this local church and in our life. Not necessarily hard to understand, but hard to obey. Okay, And we want to render obedience to our King. And we're going to talk more about how this passage applies to us. So let's dig in 
this morning. This passage, these first two verses, actually deal with two different types of slaves. Two different types of slaves. In verse 1, Paul deals with those who are under the yoke as bondservants. Under the yoke as bondservants. Now that's interesting because the word yoke means slave and the word bondservant means slave. So it's like a double way to say the same thing. Okay? And many commentators take this double language here under the yoke as bondservants to distinguish the slaves in verse 1 from the slaves in verse 2. And that mention of yoke may mean this. It may mean that the slaves in verse 1 are being treated little different than cattle would be treated. Yoke, oxen, cattle. Okay? And the Apostle Paul is addressing those in this situation uh, and contrasting them from verse 2. Those who have godly believing masters. Okay? Slaves who have godly believing masters in verse 2. In verse 1, what could be in view is those who have pagan, cruel masters, harsh masters. And I think that's exactly what's happening in this text, is he's addressing both types of slaves. Now I want to mention this. There is no one-to-one equal application in our modern American context to slaves. Okay? No matter how bad you think your job is, okay? and how mean your boss was to you last week. Maybe principles apply, okay? But when your coworker was mean to you and your boss didn't say thank you for that report that you put together, okay? So whatever bad situation that you're in, I think we can all say this in the room this morning, that it doesn't approach the severity that these brothers and sisters are in in 1 Timothy 6, Okay? So there's no one-to-one application, but there are similarities. There's a principle underneath this commandment that's that's applicable to every one of us. Every one of us. And I want us to understand how. Okay, How does a command to slaves affect you that live in arguably the freest nation that's ever existed on planet Earth? How does that happen? Okay. And I'll tell you one way. These master-slave relations show up in the family codes, the household codes in the New Testament. Okay? They show up around commandments given to husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and slaves. That's exactly what happens in Ephesians 5 and 6. It's exactly what happens in Colossians 3 and 4. And what that means is that this is an application of the fifth commandment in the Decalogue. Decalogue is the Ten Commandments. The Fifth Commandment is to honor your father and mother. And those household codes, those commandments, are applications of that one. And so the principle that's underneath honor your father and mother is that we are commanded in the Word of God to honor those who are in authority over us. Honor those who are in authority over us. The reason why it's honor your father and mother is because everybody gets introduced to that commandment through the father-mother relationship. This is the first way you learn how to obey delegated authority in this world is through obeying your father and your mother. Honoring those whom God has placed in authority above us. So this commandment 
is an application of the fifth commandment. That we must honor authority figures that God has placed in our life. And what this means when you make that connection is that disobedience, any form of insubordination to authority that God has placed in our life, ultimately dishonors the highest authority, God Himself. And I hope that's what every parent in the room is teaching your children. It's a bigger deal than when little Johnny doesn't obey mom and daddy. That's bad enough, okay? But the bigger deal is that little Johnny is learning how to disobey King Jesus. Because King Jesus said, Children, honor your father and mother. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right in the sight of the Lord. And so when we dishonor, disobey delegated authority, we dishonor and disobey the highest authority, God Himself. And it's important for us to understand the salvation that we have received in Christ, the free forgiveness that we have received in Christ, that righteous status does not remove our duty to obey and honor authority. It covers all the times that we've ever failed that because every one of us have failed that, but it doesn't remove that commandment, that expectation that King Jesus would have us to honor and obey His delegated authority, those whom He's placed over us. And so what this passage shows us is that even slaves in this New Testament period are called to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ by respectful conduct towards their masters. And I want you to think hard about that this morning. Even slaves are called to adorn the gospel in whatever condition they find themselves in. And I want to turn that to you this morning. How much more are you called? In whatever conditions you find yourself in, whatever hardship you find yourself in, how much more are you called to adorn the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ in that condition? How much more are we called to do likewise? All right, let's press in. In verse 1, Paul focuses in on the slave's attitude towards their master with these words, regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. As worthy of all honor. So that's the commandment. Not just, you know, rendering this, you know, external, I did what you said, but I hate you, okay? But this disposition of honor and respect is being commanded. That's what's being commanded. And then take, take it one step further. I want you to think about situations in your life where you try to up the stakes of what you're trying to say. Where you try to make sure your hearers understand just how um, much gravity what you're trying to say has. And, And I want you to notice when the Apostle Paul does that, what language he attaches to this commandment in verse 1. When he ups the stakes, he says this, So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. That word is literally blasphemed. So I want you to think about this. I don't know how we could make the language more severe or or, or, or to show more of what's at stake 
an obedience or disobedience to this commandment than to say, you know what's at stake in this commandment? The name of the Christian's God and the integrity of the Christian's gospel. That's what's at stake in how they respond to those who have been placed in authority over them. And I just want you to let that cook, you know, on your brain this morning. Because we're not, ten- we're not, we don't think like that, okay? When we think about these weighty commandments in the Word of God and the stakes that are attached to them, that's not typically the way that we think. That you know what? What's at stake in the way that I relate to those who are over me? God's name being blasphemed and His gospel being reviled. But that's exactly what's at stake in these Christian slaves honoring their earthly masters. And so these implications of verse 1, they apply to all of us who are under any type of authority. All of us who are under any type of authority. And here's the hard part. Brothers and sisters, here's the hard part in verse 1. That there's no qualifications given that that respect and honor is conditional upon the one over you being respectable and honorable. That's the hard part here. Is that God's Word is calling us into respect and honor with no conditions attached to it, even if you're in a condition where you're being treated as you know, very little different than a cattle, a livestock, under the yoke as slaves. This is hard stuff in the Word of God. Not necessarily hard to understand, but hard to obey. That we are called to respect those in authority over us, just like these slaves, whether they're honorable or not. And this is how important the fifth commandment is in the Christian life, and really in the created world. This is how important that principle is of honoring those whom God has placed over us in authority. That if we don't do that, if Christians just say, yeah, you know, you know we're, 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 we're all about freedom and liberty, man. We, we, we don't do that stuff. You know? If we say that, and that's how we push these you know, commandments aside, that they don't apply to us in any way, then this text tells us our name, the name of our God and the integrity of our gospel blasphemed among the nations. That we don't get to paint a picture that the gospel of Jesus Christ produces you know, insubordinate um, followers of Christ that don't yield to any authority. The gospel of Jesus Christ actually produces those who honor their father and mother. Those who honor the authorities that God has put in their life. Now in case this isn't clear, that we should render honor and respect to all who are over us in authority. It doesn't mean that we agree with what they say. It doesn't mean that we join them in sin. Okay? It doesn't mean either one of those things. But respect and honor are commanded even if that person is a dishonorable man or woman. Listen to how the Apostle Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. He says this, Servants, be subject to your masters... With all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. To the unjust. That's the same principle that the Apostle Paul is dealing with in 1 Timothy 
6. And so I say this again, brothers and sisters, disciples of Jesus Christ who want to obey King Jesus, you want to be trained by His Word to do righteousness in your life. Not to earn it, but in response to what Jesus has done for you. So I want to ask you that question again. Brothers and sisters, if this is true for slaves, how much more is it true for you that we should respect those who are in authority over us? And yet, think about the world that we live in. Think about how commonplace it has become in our American culture. Okay, And we've got to be careful of this stuff creeping into our Christian worldview of how common it has become to revile our leaders without even thinking twice about it. To just pop off, to just let somebody know what you think without even thinking twice about it. How common has that become? Okay, It's almost like breathing in this culture. And so I want us to take this principle that we see in 1 Timothy 6, and I want you as a disciple of Christ to begin to apply this to every single sphere of your life where you are under God-ordained authority. And here's what I mean. This text tells us that Christian slaves are to honor their masters. And this is what is due in every sphere. Every sphere. Honor is what is owed every master by their slave. This is the teaching of the Word of God. Honor is what is owed every husband by his wife. This is the teaching of the Word of God. Honor is what is owed every parent by their children. Again, this is the teaching of the Word of God. Honor is what is owed every employer by their employee. This is the teaching of the Word of God. And yes, honor is what is owed every president by their citizens. This is the teaching of the Word of God. No matter how repulsive a person is, no matter how ungodly a person is, this is the commandment from the Word of God. And I want to say this as your brother this morning. In no way am I saying that this is easy. In no way am I saying that this is just easy stuff, easy peasy. What I'm telling us that this is the will of God. This is the will of God for disciples of Christ. Honor and respect in the language of imperative and commandment. And this text reminds us that as we enter into these spheres and live and move as disciples of Jesus, that God's reputation is on the line and the integrity of His gospel. And so think about that. Think about the temptation here that you want to be a really zealous follower of Christ. And you want to focus in on all this spiritual stuff, getting the gospel to the nations. And if you're an insubordinate, disrespectful you know, child to your parents, or employee to your employer, or citizen to your government. The Word of God says that you're tearing down with your life what you're trying to go for. You're trying to take the gospel to all nations, and your conduct is causing the gospel to be blasphemed among the nations. That's the principle that we have to be aware of. So many of us in the room, you're in less than ideal situations in these types of relationships, and I certainly understand that. Okay? 
And even though it's not slavery, you know, some of you are not in situations that are a flowery bed of ease with your own parents, or in your vocations, or the relationship with your children, or the relationship with your spouse. Some of us, even several of us in this room, you're in hard places. You're in hard places, and yet you're being instructed that the Word of God would have you to respond with honor and respect to those who are in authority over us. And the secret here is that we do this for God's sake. Okay? And that's, that's one of the things that this text is pointing us to, is that we're doing this not with our eyes on that individual person who may be the epitome of ungodliness. If you focus on them, if all you see is them, you're never going to land in obedience to texts like this in the Bible. You have to get your, eye, your eyes and your mind off that person, and you have to place your eyes and your mind on the name and the reputation of your God. You have to do this for God's sake. You have to do this for God's sake, not for their sake. For God's sake. For the, for the sake of His glorious name. And that's exactly what the Apostle Peter goes on to say in that passage. We read verse 18. He picks it up in verse 19 with this phrase. He says, It is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering un." justly. And so we ought to enter into these hard situations that text tells us mindful of God. Mindful of God. And we'll finish off mindful of the Gospel. Mindful of the Gospel. Mindful of how God has loved and served us. Again, we'll come back to that principle in just a moment. In verse 2, he takes this same commandment of honor and respect And he applies it in verse 2 to Christian slaves with believing masters. Okay, So don't think necessarily harsh, ungodly situations, Okay, but believing masters. And he tells us in, in this passage that the Gospel has done a wonderful thing in this relationship between a slave and a master who have both bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. They have become brothers. They're, they're, they're in this slave-master relationship, and they have become brothers. And I will add the same distinctions apply in every one of those other spheres of authority. Parents and children that bow the knee to Jesus Christ. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. Husbands and wives that bow the knee to Christ. They are husbands and wives, but they're also brothers and sisters in Christ. And so this is one of the radical notes that the New Testament begins to blast when it begins to announce the finished work of Christ, that God has done something in the Gospel that renders slaves and masters one in Jesus Christ. And I'll give you just a sampling of this in the New Testament. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. I want you to imagine how glorious this would land on you as a slave in the first century church. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You are all one in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, For in one Spirit we were all baptized in one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, 
and all were made to drink of one Spirit. Same salvation has been received in Jesus Christ. you got the, same, you got the slave that's a Christian. The master is a Christian. They were both baptized into the same body. They both drank of the same Spirit. And then listen to how it says it in Colossians 3, verse 11. Here, and that's the new creation, what Jesus has done. We're told there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarians, Scythians, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Christ is all and in all. And so this text is giving us these hints, and, and we can trace them out in other places in the New Testament, that the Gospel has done something beautiful in this relationship between a Christian slave and his Christian master. They've received the same inheritance in Christ. Not, they're not, one is not richer than the other in Christ. They receive the same adoption in Jesus Christ. They have the same eternal inheritance in Christ. And this is one of the things, you know, uh, not rarely, you know, uh, uh, frequently you hear mockers mock Christianity, and one of the places where they put their finger is this right here. You know, like New Testament, it doesn't even, you know, abolish slavery. Your God is, you know, um, an archaic, you know, knuckle-dragging Neanderthal. He's, he's good with slavery. And they mock that the Apostle Paul doesn't call for abolition of slavery in these texts of Scripture. But you know what they always leave out? This right here. These gospel dynamics, that they're made one in Jesus Christ. And just look at a couple of these in verse 2. In verse 2, we're told that the Christian master, that, that the Christian slave is to, is to work all the more, serve all the more for the Christian boss, because the one who benefits from that service, last three words, is a believer and beloved. Is a believer and beloved. I want you to think about how strange that is to Roman ears and to our ears that a master would be thought of by his slave as my beloved brother or sister. That's who my master is, beloved of Jesus Christ and beloved of me. Radical transformation the gospel has introduced into this relationship. The master is a beloved brother or a beloved sister. And then look at verse 2. Verse 2 calls the work of a Christian slave a good service that renders a benefit. Literally, this would be a beneficial good service. A kind good service. And so there's a new dynamic that's been introduced through the finished work of Christ that's flattened out, uh, in a sense, some of these dynamics. That, 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 he, that the master is a beloved brother. And the slave is viewed not as you know, a worthless you know, uh, uh, instrument that gives the master what he wants, but someone who's, who's benefiting. And that word good service, that's in the same line of all the New Testament uh, language about doing good works. Good works. This is one of the New Testament good works. That a slave could approach his labor or her labor towards their master as a good work. It could be set apart and done for the glory of King Jesus, for the honor of King Jesus. 
And so the gospel introduced these new dynamics into this relationship. And, and listen to what it says in Philemon uh, verse 16. Philemon was instructed by the Apostle Paul about his runaway slave, Onesimus. Apostle Paul uh, writes to this man and gives him instructions of how this Christian master should now view his Christian slave. And he says, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave. As a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord. So I want you to think about how revolutionary this would have been in the Roman world. And really any form of slavery that you're familiar with, that the slave would refer to the master as my beloved. And that the master would refer to the slave as my brother. And that's exactly what the gospel does in this relationship. And you give that time to play out for a couple of generations and you know what happens to the institution of slavery? Done. And that's exactly what, what's happened. The Christian worldview has done away with the institution of slavery in three world empires. In the Roman Empire, in the British Empire, and in the, in the American world. The Christian worldview, these dynamics taken to their logical conclusion, undoes the institution itself from the bottom up. Deals with the very foundation, the heart. Spiritual oneness in Christ. And so the New Testament sounds this note over and over again, that believing slaves, believing masters, they're one in Christ, they're brothers in Christ. They're brothers in Christ. And then we come to this commandment in verse 2. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers. That they are brothers. And the Apostle Paul has his finger on this temptation that these slaves would at least feel as an impulse in response to this oneness in Christ. This, uh, this, this radical transformation that has been injected into this relationship. And so the Apostle Paul reminds us that even though there's, they're one in Christ, it doesn't change the earthly relationship. And that's a really important principle. Okay, That's a really important principle. Husbands and wives that are one in Christ... It doesn't undo the fact that they're still husbands and wives and they have duties towards each other. And some of these slaves in Ephesus, because this commandment is likely to have a reason behind it why he's putting his finger here in this specific church order letter, is that some of these slaves may have felt an impulse, wrong as it may have been, that in response to the finished work of Jesus, they would use their equality in Christ as an excuse to slack off from their work. So try to imagine those dynamics that, you know, on, on the sinful part of you, the flesh of how those gospel promises and those gospel realities land on the flesh of we're one in Christ, we're brothers in Christ. The flesh says, that sounds pretty good to me. I'm tired of all this labor stuff. And the flesh twists the gospel and the promises of the gospel to turn it into an opportunity for the flesh to slack off in their work or to solicit special treatment 
from their masters to have you know, two different levels of treatment. The masters treat you know, one category of servants this way and another category of servants this way. The Apostle Paul anticipates this response. And any Christian employers that are in the room know exactly why the Apostle Paul anticipates this response. Okay? If you have been in the position of hiring or firing as an employer, in the position of managing other people, uh, you, know, you, know, you may have entered into that position at one point in your life with this naivety that you know, if you hire Christians, they're automatically going to be the best workers that you've ever hired in your life. It's just automatically going to happen. And, and, you know, maybe a year, maybe not so close to a year into that situation you find out. It's, it should be so, but it ain't so. It should be so, but it ain't so. We need to be reminded as Christians that work for other Christians that our job, you know, when we labor for our employers, especially believers, that our job is not to milk the system, okay? Not to milk the system, we need to be reminded that the Christian worldview, when we think about work and labor, is not, okay, let me see how I can clock in today, spend as little amount of time at work as I possibly can, and spend as little amount of time as I'm there actually working. That is not the Christian worldview. The gospel actually calls us into these spheres of vocation as diligent servants, rendering good service to those who are over us. To those who are over us. And so those Christian employers, you know, they, they hire, um, you know, Christians and they're thinking, you know, this brother or sister, man, they fear the Lord. And the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I'm excited that God has brought me some believers to hire in my business. And we need to be reminded that that, that, that should be so. That the fear of the Lord should produce in us diligence. But our shame is that it's not always so. That Christians can be guilty of slothfulness in service. And verse 2 calls us to diligent service. And all the more for Christian bosses. For Christian bosses. Again, those things, those things apply. You know, you might be a child in the room and you have godly parents. You have godly parents. And they don't rule over you as... Pharaoh taskmasters, like some parents do their children. And you need to be aware that you're going to be tempted to take advantage of this situation. When what you should do is you should render obedience all the more to your godly, gentle, Christian parents. Same dynamics apply in marriage. Some of you may be married to an ungodly tyrant of a husband. Ungodly tyrant of a husband. Others of you are married to a godly, gentle husband that fears the Lord. And you need to be at least aware of these sinful dynamics that your flesh would turn this situation into an opportunity for disobedience. Instead of an opportunity to serve all the more. These are these principles applied to all of life. To all of life. We have to learn as followers of Christ that our vocations are not just what we do and to get the money to do the things that really matter. This is a really big problem in our generation. Let me just say that for just a minute, okay? We need to have a biblical view of vocation. 
And we need to be especially aware of this ungodly view that my work, what is, what is my work? Well, my work's where I go get the money to do the stuff that I really care about, like raising my family, preaching the gospel to the nations, and doing all the spiritual stuff. And we need to be reminded that the Christian life is not just one never-ending pursuit of the spiritual disciplines. Meditate on the Word, preach the gospel, make disciples, pray, repeat, you know, uh, set my life up where I can do as little of anything else as I possibly can so I can do most of that. Okay? That, that's, the, that's this antinomian impulse. Okay? This is the wrong way to think about our vocation. So I'll just give you this, you know, just to consider. Okay? If that's how you think, if you think about your work as where you get money to do the spiritual stuff that really matters, what do you do with texts in the Bible like this that tell you your work is the spiritual stuff? What do you do with that? What do you do with when King Jesus puts His finger on your vocation and demands that you serve Him in your job? In your job. That it's not this thing that's just, you know, you set off to the side as, as this little part of your life where you don't serve Christ. No, you serve Christ in your vocation. And remember the stakes that are there. Remember the stakes that are there. The name of God and the reputation of your God and the integrity of your gospel. That's what's at stake when a Christian punches the time clock and goes into work. It's not this little bitty thing that allows you to do all the things that matter. It's a way that we serve God. And think about all the hours that you spend in this job, in this act of service. And so I want to call us to, to awaken to this glorious Christian worldview. Okay? Jobs are not something that we just have to do. Jobs are, jobs are something that we get to do. Okay? We get to carry the name of Jesus into every aspect of our life, and many of us get to do that around 40 hours a week in whatever vocation that God has placed us in. Now, I said this earlier, and I want to repeat this again, that these commandments that we're seeing in this passage, they're not always easy. They're not always easy. And I, and I certainly understand that. I might not know every single detail of your situation, but I, I certainly understand this morning of how this can be exceedingly difficult to render obedience in these spheres that are really hard. That are really hard. And so I want us to be encouraged this morning that the gospel actually fuels, it encourages us to render this obedience because it calls us to remember of how God has loved us, how Jesus Christ has served us. And one of the ways that you could summarize the gospel of how you became a Christian is that Jesus came and He served you. Jesus came and He served you. And I want you to remember who we were. The Bible you know, is very clear on this point. Okay, If there was anybody in the whole creation that didn't deserve to be served, it was us. We were the rebellious creatures of Almighty God. We were dirt plus the breath of God, and yet we rebelled against our King. Nobody deserves service from God less than we did. And then what does the Gospel remind us of? It says that Jesus came and He served us like a slave. Like a slave. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He came not to be served, 
but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And so you think about this. Think about this. If our impulse and our operating you know, motif and the way that we deal with others is you only give them what they deserve. You only get them what they deserve. Think about how miserable we would have been if Jesus Christ would have merely and only gave us what we deserved. And instead, we're told that He came and He served us like a slave, even becoming a bloody payment for our sin. This is how we become a Christian. And this text calls us to go and do likewise. Serve others as Christ has served you. And so we used this pivot earlier. If slaves are called to serve their masters and honor them as Christians, brothers and sisters, how much more are you called to do so? And then we'll jump into another you know, world of analogy. If the sinless Son of God came and served those who did not deserve it, how much more His ransomed followers like us? We go and we do likewise by remembering what Jesus has done for us. I want to close with Philippians chapter 2. We're told in verse 5 to have this mind in us. And then we're told that was also in Christ. Verse 6 says this, "...who though He was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to You today and we ask God that You would help us to remember exactly what You've told us that You've done. Overwhelm us this morning, Lord, that You came and You served us. You left that high and holy place. That You didn't treat us in a way that our sins demanded or deserved. You came and You served you were, you were, you're a loving God, full of grace and steadfast love. God, we come to You today as Your church, and we pray that You would crucify, God, our, all of our temptations this morning and all of our sins of apathy towards respect and honor. God, we pray that You would help us to take up these commands, to sit at Your feet as disciples. Lord Jesus, we want to be like You. We ask that You would be merciful to us, Lord. We live in the midst of a people of unclean lips that mock about such things. Lord, deliver us from being influenced by our ungodly culture, satanic culture. Teach us obedience, we pray. God, we pray that You would produce that beautiful obedience in this local church that adorns the Gospel. And we tell You today, Lord Jesus as our King, We don't want to dishonor You, Lord. God, we don't want to blaspheme Your name. God, would You help us? God, would You help us to live a life that makes sense in eternity? That's not governed by the standards of this world, but that's governed by the Word of God. 
Lord, help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.